Hi, everybody. Welcome to the August 12, 2016 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Gazzutti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the latest power outage woes hitting RTD's newest trains. The A train to DIA had several service interruptions this week, as did the B train to Westminster. Penicahoon from Westward, uh, just the latest in RTD woes, this time all being trains, not light rail. Did they come out on this too early? It sounds like they probably did. I've taken the A-Line in from DIA. It's great when it runs. Now, the people who were stuck on it for six and a half hours might not agree. The other problem, there are a couple other problems with it. If you're coming into DIA and you've never been there before, it's pretty hard to figure out where to get that train. And I've heard a lot of complaints from tourists. The other thing is, if you're trying to cross over into North Denver, you often get stopped by the tracks for a very long time because the other thing that isn't working are the guardrails. So. It does seem like they need to do a lot of maintenance work very quickly. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. We were used to seeing some problems with the A train, but then when we saw just at least a power outage problem with the B train, it seems a little bit more systemic, doesn't it? Well, let, let's remember uh, that the A train should be called the University of Colorado train because they good spent point. five wasted five million dollars to brand themselves with this fiasco. Um, Denver's District Attorney Dale Tooley in 1983 said that most people in Denver don't believe that RTD could run a two-car funeral. Um, and we should think about how did RTD get the name originally? What does RTD stand for? Reason to drive. <laughs> Somehow I knew that was going to be showing up. That's a very good point, David. Uh, Kristen White, a reporter from the AP, joins us. Thank you for being here. Uh, is this just the tip of the iceberg? Are we going to see more and more problems with RTD? Are they going to need to do something about this since we're seeing more trains stopping on tracks? They're Absolutely going to need to do something about it. People are moving here. They want transit. They want to get around outside the car. Um, I've taken the airport train five times. Only once was there no stop or interruption, all at different points, all at different times. You miss one flight. You tell everybody you know, don't take it, drive. Uber's cheaper now. Just don't, don't wait till they work the kinks out. So it's a significant problem that is important for the whole city, even people that don't use the train. Alicia Vincent joins us from the uh, president of the Colorado Black Women for Political Action. Uh, so the current problems that RTD is experiencing now, do you think that's going to affect the way uh, voters in the metro area look at future plans we might see from RTD? Well, it's not on the ballot this, this cycle. So if they get their stuff together, then that will be good. What, what concerns me equally, not only did it seem like this was rushed, but also that they're cutting bus lines in low-income neighborhoods as a result of this. And so they want a more walkable city, but they're not making it easy for those folks who either have one car or are totally dependent on, you know, public transportation. Mm -hmm. Let's get to it. Ballot petition signatures were turned in this week for several initiatives hoping to qualify for the 2016 ballot. So far, only Colorado health care and the minimum wage increase have officially qualified. Issues that turn in signatures but are still waiting certification include proposals regarding fracking, medically assisted suicide, and presidential primaries. Patty, we expected a big fracking fight in 2014, and then it didn't happen. And then we thought, well, at least that's going to be the, the headline event for 2016. 
but they may not even make the ballot. I mean, they turned they didn't turn in reportedly uh, more than I guess it was 105,000 signatures. You need 98,000, so a 98 percent uh, perfect rate is really high. Do you think we're finally going to get that fracking fight? In the, in the courts, yes, as they try to sue to get on the ballot, because I don't think they have enough signatures to make the ballot. All you have to do is look at the problems we had with Colorado Senate candidates, Republican Senate candidates with their petition signatures, to know that the courts is your next resort after you get booted. I actually had two staffers over at Wayne Williams' office right at the deadline for initiatives. We were doing a Facebook Live interview with him, and we get this little note across the table that a U-Haul had just picked pulled up with all the fracking signatures. And so just box after box came in, but as we later found out, those boxes weren't full. 105 is just not enough. You need at least 98,000 that are good, and that's not enough to give. I think we'll see raise the bar on it, which ironically wants to have you bring in more signatures in order to <laughs> change, um, put an initiative of that on that would change the Constitution. I think right to die or that bill will get on. Um, we're going to be very busy still at the ballot box. There are going to be at least a half dozen on the statewide level, and then some locally will be voting on. David, there is a lot of political fear in 2014 to the point that uh, Governor Hickelberg had to hold a, uh, a conference just so he can get those fracking ballot measures off the ballot. It seems that there's going to be a lot of money from both sides. People knew the oil and gas companies would, be, uh, would bring that, but people also thought there'd be a lot of support from Colorado. What do you think contributed to the lack of, you know, the U-Haul really being needed, I guess, is the right point. Uh, Well-educated Coloradans who are, we've been through this uh, anti-fracking hysteria, you know, for several years now, and people are starting to catch on that all these scenarios of, oh, it's going to make your tap water catch on fire and it's going to poison everybody and all and all, it, it, it's not working. The uh, campaign against it, uh, the, the first in our state's history of saying, don't sign this, I, I think was effective. And it turns out that uh, the Donald's endorsement of it apparently didn't sway that many Colorado voters where he came in and talked about nothing, something he, one of the many things he knows nothing about. Uh, but his, his endorsement of this apparently didn't uh, bring in sufficient signatures for it. Kristen, you're covering a lot of the ballot issues uh, for the AP. From what you've seen so far, what do you think are going to be the headliners uh, in Colorado for this year's election? The, definitely the uh, universal health care measure. I interviewed the sponsor of that measure about a year ago, and she jokingly said this is going to be a huge boost to Colorado's economy just in how much outside advertising it's going to attract uh, from the insurance industry to defeat it. I think these are going to single-handedly keep uh, our local TV stations in business for the year, especially as our Senate race is not as hot as some thought it would be. Presidential might not be as hot as it could be. Um, they're going to be packed out with... Um, oil and gas money if that makes it and in fact the big loser if that doesn't make it probably is nine news um, if, and the universal health care measure already on ballots it's going to be really interesting to see how those go Halisi, uh, some folks are saying that this is kind of a no year with the electorate the way it is that they're just going to vote no on almost anything but when you look at the Colorado electorate and where we're at we've had a lot of new folks move in since 2014 where do you think they are in general as they approach ballot issues I think most folks are uninformed I mean, the average person thinks about politics and all of this about three minutes per week. So, so I haven't well, hopefully signed... 26 minutes on this show, but yeah, I get what you're saying. I have not signed any of these, and I told them, I said, if we have too many, people will just vote no all the way down the line. Um, I have concerns about the health care initiative, even though I'm pretty liberal and would love to see something like this. I don't think that this is the right measure. I have, I'm, you know, pro... Uh, 
or not anti-fracking, but definitely let's let's start you know lessening fossil fuel uh, consumption. And yet I can't support this fracking bill um, and assisted suicide. I, it's it's too much, and I believe that uh, voters will be confused. And yes, this will be the no year. I, I will be surprised if any of these pass. We'll have to wait and see. Denver Police Chief Robert White announced this week that the department will draft a plan to collect racial data from police interactions and then seek community input on that plan. Meanwhile, Denver DA Mitch Morrissey announced that no charges will be filed against technician Jeffrey Motts, who shot and killed an unarmed suspect in April. David, two separate issues here, but as you see the developments from the DPD, what are your thoughts? Um, on the collecting the data, that, that seems like a good idea for a, a department that's had historically troubled relations with with minorities um, and knowledge is good as is the motto of the university in, in Animal House and and good for them for also seeking community input about how to do it and good for DA Morrissey for making the right decision on the police officer who uh, shot the bank robber who they had surrounded and was refusing to comply. Westward did a very good story on it, going through the, the details and with lots of pictures and information from the report about how all the physical evidence was very consistent with what the officer said, that the guy was, instead of complying, like, you know, put up your hands so I can see him, uh, he was uh, shaking his head, refusing to comply, and then making a sudden move um, in a way that the police officer reasonably thought he had a gun, and you're not as a police officer required to stand around and get shot before you can defend yourself. It's based on what, what, is what would a reasonable person believe under the circumstances. And under the circumstances, any reasonable person would believe that this guy who had, a, who had perpetrated an armed robbery uh, was going for a gun. Kristen, there's been a variety of community groups that want to be involved in drafting the plan now, not, not to, uh, for the police department to seek input later. What do you think about that, and should the Denver police take a second look at bringing community groups involved now instead of later? Absolutely. I cannot wrap my brain around what, I don't want to say something's wrong with Denver, why these things that happen in other cities and spark a lot of concern, a lot of community chatter, just don't seem to, you know, the cops will just unload uh, on a car full of unarmed teenagers and people are like, well, they were driving toward him. Or this guy made a threatening gesture. He might have robbed a bank. They don't know he robbed a bank. Um, and so it's strange to me that things that happen in other cities really spark a lot of community concern. And here it's like, well, you call the ACLU, the usual suspects. They will say they find it alarming. But you don't see. I remember I was working on a weekend the day after the Jessica Hernandez decision not to charge those officers for killing an unarmed teenager because she was driving towards them. And my editor in a different city said, well, what's our plan to cover any protests? And I said, oh, it's raining. <laughs> and she was like a little, um, uh, what does that mean? I was like, well, you know, it's raining. No one's going to protest. It's Denver. It's raining. So I, I really don't understand why uh, there is little interest or maybe maybe we're just missing the interest I don't know what it is about Denver that it doesn't seem to spark a lot of um, community concern and coming together when these things happen Halisi what do you think about the point about getting community groups involved on the the racial data uh, collection plan because there are other cities who uh, that have done it there's uh, at least uh, ways that can be mimicked they can say okay here's how this city does it we can go about it this way right. does do community groups need to be involved in this early part of the planning 
Absolutely. Community should always be involved because the community is affected, right? Um, the police supposedly are here to protect and serve. And, and, I, and I do say supposedly because that was not the, the genesis of the police department or any police department. Um, however, we are at a point now where um, to not include the community would be a slap in, in our face. And, um, you know, as you said, you know, it, it's, it's, it's disturbing that there seems to be a lack of passion. It, and I think some of it has to do with our numbers. So African Americans only make up about 13% of Denver proper. And so when I see the Black Lives Matters uh, movement here, it, I mean, 30 people are out there. It's, it, you know, but that doesn't mean that we still don't have an issue. And I, you know, I've talked to um, Morrissey on a, a number of occasions, and we are asking our, our police department to do a lot. We're asking them to be mental health professionals. And I think, and I think that CBWPA is actually going to take this on, that all police uh, officers need to have counseling on a regular basis. I can't imagine having to deal with folks who are on the edge on a daily basis and think that I'm going to remain sane and sound um, in, my, in, my daily, in my daily business. And so when we see these kinds of things happen, when we see, um, obviously, they need more training, when we see them shooting seven times because they think they saw something, we have an issue. Community has to definitely be involved in all of this. And, um, and we need to hold them accountable. So once they say they're going to do something, I remember they came around with the sheriff's department and they had this big plan. And I said, the mistake will be if you don't come back to us and tell us what you're going to do based upon what we told you. Patty, the idea for the Denver Police Department to collect racial data and uh, make this is a pretty big change. They, that was not the position that the Denver Police Department held for a long time. Uh, Chief White has changed that just recently. So that's a big change. Do they need to go the step further and include community groups in before making a plan? Well, it's a big change, except they've looked at this before. Ten years ago, um, they were, business um, police officers were supposed to hand out business cards on every stop. They were supposed to collect racial profiling. There was a test pilot program. Tracy Kesey, who was one of the finalists to be the chief when Chief White got the job, had kind of led that. She's at the NYPD now. So we actually have a system that kind of worked, but it was a pilot. It disappeared. And that had a lot of community input in it. Um, so now why not just reinstitute that? And if it needs to be changed along the way, meet, continue meeting with the community and change it. But we spend so much time studying. We talked last week about the mall. Why did it take deciding we're going to have private security guards and putting them on the mall when they're still not there? It takes a year to figure out, you know, hire Barney Fife and get him out there and give him more than one bullet if he needs it. <laughs> so we're doing enough studying. I think we have answers. There are other cities that have come up with good plans. Colorado Springs has a plan. There, there are other ones we can tweak. But another study, look at how long the sheriff's department lasted. Mm -hmm. A Denver 7 investigation reported this week that internal emails show that the Donald Trump campaign bears responsibility for many events that occurred at a speaking engagement in Colorado Springs. I know a lot, many of us are shocked. The emails show <laughs> that the campaign knew the capacity of the venue and caused the elevator delay with the bypass key given to the campaign by the elevator manufacturer. We wish we were making this up. This is actually what was reported. Um, Kristen, you see all these different uh, stories associated with this um, event that happened in Colorado Springs several weeks ago. But at this point, this doesn't even register anywhere near on the Richter scale of uh, Donald Trump controversy. This doesn't even get into the back page if there was supposed to be a newspaper <laughs> of it. So does this make any difference to um, Colorado voters seeing the details that we know now? It kind of does. I always scratch my head when campaigns make you know, an unforced error like this. 
you're in very friendly territory. Um, when campaigns do things like blow people off, show up two hours late, not plan right, make people stand around with no water for a long time, all those people go home and everybody they meet that was like, oh, you went out to the rally, how was it? And they go, oh, that so-and-so was hours late. Everybody at that fire department, everybody that was got a ticket and then learns later that they knew that they wouldn't be able to have to get in, they're all really frustrated. So I think campaigns sometimes, and the lesson for local, you're right, this will not even be a footnote in the Trump story, but I think the lesson for politicians is to think about um, how you treat people or how you, how you plan events and make sure that everybody there has a good experience because they're going to spread that message to everybody they go home to. Alicia, I imagine like in Colorado, like a lot of other places, there are a group that are going to vote one way, regardless of what story is going to come out, and a group that's going to vote the other way, regardless of stories. But there's that squishy middle that's still maybe kind of on the fence. Do stories like this affect that squishy middle? Oh, absolutely. I, I feel like I'm in uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Harrison Bergeron, <laughs> where everyone has just been dumbed down. And we have decided that if you're a D student, that's the person who should be president. We are in, in scary <laughs> times here. And, and I, I, I am concerned that folks are not taking this seriously enough. And they think that uh, Mr. Trump is the same as a John McCain or Mitt Romney or even a George Bush, uh, George W. And, and that's simply not the case. Um, first of all, our, our, our fire department is always highly regarded. Everyone loves our fire department, and so to put them on the spot and to, and to denigrate them on national television makes absolutely no sense and just shows that he does not have the, the fortitude nor the temperament to really um, hold the highest office. I mean, can you imagine him negotiating with other world leaders? Seriously? Unbelievable. It, it, yeah. does, uh, it does cause question. Patty, uh, the latest NBC News poll shows uh, Trump down 14 points in Colorado. That was only eight points a month ago, so it's getting worse, not better. Uh, I can't imagine this helps. No, that elevator is definitely going down right now. <laughs> if you wanted to do a commercial, an anti-Trump commercial in Colorado, really all you have to do is take the clip of him denigrating the fire marshal a Republican, a good civic servant in Colorado Springs, being blamed for doing the job that he was supposed to do and, in fact, that the campaign knew about. So between that and maybe some fun footage of him stuck in the elevator, it's all the ad you need. <laughs> uh, David, you've been on record here at the show of uh, being supportive of both candidates, uh, really right. being a fan of both Hillary and, and uh, Donald Trump. Um, is this just the latest footnote we're going to forget in a couple of weeks, or does this actually have some staying power? I think it has some in Colorado. Um, and one, one thing you, the, the Channel 7 reported was the behind-the-scenes Trumper tantrum where he said, if you don't let in more people above the fire code, I'm not going to show up. So what's going to happen then? All my, well, maybe my, who knows what, what will happen then. But what a, what a bogus thing to tell all those people who did wait in line and got in, you're just going to blow it off because the fire department wouldn't violate the fire safety laws for you. Um, the, the Trump campaign is uh, innovative in a sense because you, he's not the first presidential candidate who has had personality disorders, but he's the first one to try to affirmatively get them out there and make sure the public sees them very visibly day after day so that they dominate coverage and all the flaws of his opponent, of which there are many, never make it into the top news. He'll always be at the Donald's personality disorder manifestation of the day. In, in that poll you mentioned, when it, you ask about all four major candidates, he's down to 29%. Gary Johnson, 
uh, who leads a ticket of mo former moderate Republican governors, has 15% in Colorado. 15% is the threshold see that. to be in the presidential debates. He's crossed that threshold in Utah. He's crossed it in Colorado now. And I think he will continue to cross it in more and more states. And given the revulsion uh, widespread in this country against both major party candidates, uh, I think he has a realistic chance of winning some electoral votes. And perhaps of saving the nation, because if you think, like I do, that Hillary Clinton would be a catastrophe for this country, then you've got to vote for the only candidate who's got a chance of beating her, and that is Gary Johnson. Let's get a quick take on this last topic. The sentence of two years in jail with, with work and school release for a former CU student who was found guilty of sexual assault made national headlines this week. The sentence is being compared to the case of a Stanford student who received a six-month sentence for, for rape earlier this year. Halisi, your, your quick take on this. Uh, I imagine this is going to make more and more national headlines that be such a light sentence. Right. I think it's appalling. And... And furthermore, I believe that if, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there, if he were black, if he were one of the football players, that he would have gotten um, sentenced. I mean, statistics point this out. Um, black males uh, get the mandatory minimum at least 60% of the time, two to three times more likely than their white male counterparts. So we know that that's probably going to be the case. Um, the other thing that is disturbing is that just like when, when uh, President Obama got into office, we saw a lot more racism than we did before. My concern is now with um, Secretary Clinton on the top of the ticket that we will see a lot more misogyny. This is um, a sign of that. And why we don't take this more seriously when we know that sexual offenders more likely than not always repeat. Um, and then the judge even said <laughs> that they, he seemed to be in the courtroom with a sense of entitlement. So I don't see the remorse. Um, I understand not wanting to necessarily ruin someone's life, but this is serious. This is a serious crime, and I think that he should have gotten prison, uh, a prison sentence. Patty, some prosecutors said that, that if you don't like these light sentences that the law needs to be changed. Do you think that's on the horizon? Well, I think there's still enough law that if the judge wanted to sentence him, the judge could have sentenced him. This is a little different than the Stanford situation where at least he showed, he did apologize. That's something, as opposed to in Stanford where it was like, hail the conquering hero. And his father sent out, you know, I think, an email or Facebook post basically saying his son was in the right. I mean, it, the Stanford situation was just so horrible. And if you read what the victim in that case wrote a 7,000-word description of what it was like to be raped and then go into the courtroom, it's really, clearly the judge in this Boulder case did not read it because it's really an amazing piece of writing. David, you're our esteemed lawyer at the table. Do you think it's a problem with the law or the judge? I think it's a problem with the law, and the Boulder Daily Camera did a, a really good uh, investigatory article about the problem with, with Colorado's rape sentencing laws. And the way they are now is the judge basically has, and many judges have said this, the choice is either probation or an indeterminate sentence up to life. And, you know, a judge has to say, well, you know, if, if the right sentence would be six years and you're giving me a choice between probation or life, well, probation is closer to that. And so I think the laws ought to be reformed so that you could sentence to somebody to prison but for less than life. Kristen, wrap it up for us. What do you think? Um, I, would, I would hate to see these cases lead us that, to a line of getting back to um, mandatory uh, or taking away judicial discretion. I think we all recognize that 
having uh, no no wiggle room for judges or they can't use any discretion leads to uh, not making anybody safer but to a lot of unjust sentences. So I think it's important. I actually would agree with Boulder County District Attorney Stan Garnett who said this is a time for reflection and discussion and, and I, I'm not saying that the sentencing guidelines shouldn't change but that the issue here is, is reaching out to judges and if the voters can hold the judges accountable that's probably a good reason too. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, as a segue from that Boulder story, I haven't heard of a lot of college assaults that involve pot as opposed to alcohol. The DA, DEA yesterday announced that it was going to refuse to reschedule marijuana to Schedule 2, which would allow... They did say they would allow more research of the possibilities of marijuana being used for medical, but it is way past time that that should be rescheduled. David. And uh, President Obama's daughter seems to have smoked pot at some uh, show. Would, I don't think that's a big deal, but, you know, that's an example of how people from privileged backgrounds can get away with it, and people from lesser backgrounds often get in trouble and have something on their record that really harms them. If Donald weren't so busy acting out, being trying to top himself as jackass of the week, week after week, the media might have paid some more attention to the fact that the emails show the tight relationship between the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton State Department. And in fact, the FBI recommended opening investigatory cases about this apparently illegal criminal relationship. And the Department of Justice said no. If Donald could just shut up for a week, people might learn a little about the tremendous corruption uh, of the Hillary uh, organized crime family. Long odds on that one. Kristen. Um, I'm going to pile on and say the DEA. Um, this really affects folks in Colorado. Um, they perpetuated the, the eternal catch-22, which is we want to study it more. Um, so the FDA, you should get on that. And the FDA says, oh, we can't study it more as long as it's Schedule 1. It's limited to how it is. Only Ole Miss can grow it. And if you, anybody that's ever tried to research it can tell you how impossible that is. So it leaves folks, like all our regulators here in Colorado, from um, our chief medical officer to um, the you know, people collecting taxes at the Department of Revenue, really stuck in this. There's no solution. And what we need government to do is help regulators keep us all safe and keep uh, life functioning quickly. And they're just throwing up one roadblock after another. Khaleesi. I would uh, have to say that the, the travesty of the week would be um, a, a presidential candidate suggesting that gun rights folks should take care of another presidential candidate um, should she be elected. Say something nice about somebody rather quickly. Patty. I want to say something nice about Colorado voters who've got a big job ahead to understand everything, but the voting ranks in the last month, in the unaffiliated voters increased by 20,000 while the party registrations went down. David. All the people in the Channel 12 audience and the audience of other uh, actual shows about public affairs who try to get some news from sources like this instead of just relying solely on things like TV comedy shows. Here, here. <laughs> I'm going to uh, praise, there's a PUC commissioner named Francis Concilia, who stood up for um, an unsafe train crossing in southern Colorado where five people died earlier this summer and said, we, we, we can't forget about this, and, and laid on her other commissioners and the train and the CDOT to really get that done for improved safety requirements there. I'm going to give a shameless plug and give a shout out to Senator Nina Turner, who has agreed to be our keynote speaker at our luncheon this year, which is October 8th, for Colorado Black Women for Political Action. 40-year-old organization and a stalwart of the community. Great plug. That's all the time we had tonight. Thanks for tuning in. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks very much for watching. Good night.